Well, what a beautiful reminder of Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I like the translation in my Bible, which says, cease striving and know that I am God. And I think that's really the point of that verse is that sometimes we strive and we get anxious and we get stressed out, right? And uh, it's basically a call to relax and rest in the Lord and uh, to be speechless in his presence and uh, to come to him, right, all who are weary and heavy laden and know that he'll give you rest and find that his yoke is light and easy. So I hope that was an encouragement to your heart this morning as it was mine. Well, take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Philemon, a little letter tucked between Titus and Hebrews that could be very easily overlooked, especially if your pages of your Bible stick together in that section, right? You might might not even know it was there. But we began a a little mini-series on this book kind of as an appendix to our study in the book of Colossians, that oftentimes when you go through the book of Colossians, um, Philemon is uh, added on. At least it is in most commentaries that I've used for Colossians. They include Philemon because of the connection between the two books in that Philemon was the host of the church in Colossae. Uh, It met in his home. And uh, so there's a very clear connection between the book of Colossians and the book of Philemon. And as I said uh, two weeks ago, this is really a continuation of the book of Colossians in that uh, it's a, a very practical illustration and application of uh, really putting into practice our completeness in Christ in the specific area of forgiveness. And that's what this whole book is all about. It's about forgiveness. And uh, we've chosen to title it Forgiving the Fugitive. And uh, we're going to do just a few more weeks on it. And, uh, and so let's just uh, get back into it this morning. And I want to reread for you verses 1 through 7. Uh, That is the portion that we're going to look at today. Philemon, verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Father, we thank you for your word, and no matter where we turn in it, Lord, there's something here for us, and Lord, we thank you that ultimately that your word points us to Christ and how desperately we need him for salvation and how desperately we need him for sanctification and how, Lord, this particular portion of scripture shows us how we need him in in order to be able to forgive others. We thank you for the example that he set for us in his death on the cross, taking the penalty, our penalty, for our sin upon himself so that we could be forgiven by you. And so I pray that as we study this little letter that you would uh, open up our eyes to see Jesus and how he should inspire us and what he did for us to forgive others. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, this week I was handed a book by someone in our church entitled Murder by Family, the incredible true story of a son's treachery and a father's forgiveness. Now, some of you may remember hearing about this story. In fact, it happened in our own backyard down in Sugarland, and it was in the local news a few years ago, and then it was later aired on 48 Hours Mystery and 2020 and the Oprah Winfrey Show. Let me tell you the story briefly if you've not heard of it. On December 10, 2003, Kent and Tricia Whitaker and their two sons, Bart and Kevin, were returning to their home in Sugarland from dinner at a local restaurant where they had been celebrating Bart's upcoming graduation from Sam Houston State University. Well, when they opened the door, they were met by gunfire. An intruder was there, and he opened fire on the family. The first two shots instantly killed Tricia, uh, Kent's wife, and Kevin, one of their sons. And the next two bullets wounded Kent and Bart, who was struck in the arm as he struggled with the gunman. Well, both Kent and Bart were rushed to the hospital, where they were recovering there for a number of days and weeks. And uh, while recovering in the hospital, Kent, the father, who, by the way, is a committed Christian, thought about the, the horrific situation that had happened to his family and what his faith in Christ called him to do in this situation. On the one hand, he felt like uh, this was a senseless tragedy and he wondered where God was in all of this. Very natural to be thinking that. On the other hand, he knew that the Bible said very clearly that God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so Kent faced a painful dilemma. Should he give in to his feelings of, of, of despair and resentment and even rage? Or should he, through a conscious act of his will, make a decision to trust God's promise that somehow good would come from this tragedy in spite of how senseless that it seemed? Well, by God's grace, he resolved to trust God. And with that, he also resolved to forgive who was, whoever was responsible for murdering his wife and son, even though at first he, he angrily wanted to exact vengeance. Well, little did he realize at that time just how important his decision to forgive would be. Because in the weeks and the months that followed, investigators began to suspect that the murder had been arranged by his surviving son, Bart, who was there in the hospital bed beside him. At first, as any dad would, he couldn't believe such a thing was even possible. But he was disturbed to learn from the police that Bart had not actually graduated from college. In fact, he was no longer even enrolled at Sam Houston. But surely his son was not capable of something like this. Well, after they released both Ken and Bart from the hospital, they lived together for seven months in the family home, despite police warnings that Bart was the prime suspect, which, of course, put Ken at high risk. Well, he still thought there's little chance that his son had anything to do with the crime. But then when Bart disappeared into the mountains of Mexico, seven months later, Kent had to face the reality that his son was most likely involved in the murders. And sure enough, 15 months later, Bart was arrested and charged with masterminding the shootings of his family. He claimed that he had 
come to hate his family because he felt they had set standards for him that were, were more than he could live up to. And in March 2007, he was convicted for the murder of his mother and brother and sentenced to death. And even today, he is still on death row here in Texas. And yet his father, Kent, continues to model God's unconditional love and forgiveness towards him. I mean, this, this truly is an inspiring story of the power of forgiveness. But it's also a very convicting story of, of the need to forgive. And my thought was if, if Kent Whitaker could forgive his own son for killing his mother and his brother, why can't we forgive far less crimes that are committed against us on a daily basis? Why can't we also model God's unconditional forgiveness and love like this father is doing to this day towards his son despite unimaginable betrayal? But listen, beloved, this is what God expects from those of us who call ourselves Christians. We know what the scriptures teaches. It's very clear. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, God says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Listen, forgiveness is the trademark of Christianity. I mean, it's, 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 it's at the core of everything we say we believe. We would not be here were it not for forgiveness. In fact, forgiveness is so important. It's such a, it's such a vital concept to the Christian life that the Spirit of God devoted an entire book of the Bible to it. It's called Philemon. And if uh, you remember, I passed out this little outline last time, and maybe some of you kept it there in Philemon. That would have been a good thing to do, just kind of tucked away there in that page. But uh, this was a, a very interesting letter that Paul wrote, the, the shortest letter, the most personal letter uh, of all 13 letters he wrote that are recorded here in the Scriptures. And uh, he was writing to Philemon, a brother in Christ, uh, the man who was the host of the church in Colossae, and he was writing to him to appeal to him to receive back his slave, Onesimus, who had stolen from him and run away to Rome. And somewhere in that process, in the providence of God, he bumped into the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul led him to Christ. And the Apostle Paul and, and Onesimus hit it off, and they, they became best of friends, and, and Onesimus was a great partner for Paul and a great supporter of Paul, a great helper for Paul, and, and yet both he and Onesimus knew that the right thing to do was for him to go back to his rightful owner and to make restitution and to seek forgiveness. And so Paul sent Onesimus back to Philemon with this letter, explaining to him that now that he had come to Christ, that he should forgive him and welcome him and receive him back as if it was Paul himself. And Paul even agreed and promised to pay whatever debt he owed his master. He said, put it on my tab. I'll pay you when I get there. Don't hold that against him. And so we see a beautiful picture in the Apostle Paul of the intercession and the imputation of Christ and how he interceded and imputed his, his took our debt on himself on the cross. And uh, we are those runaway slaves. 
We are Onesimuses. And so we see a beautiful picture here, not only of forgiveness between two human beings, but we also see a reminder, a picture of the forgiveness that Christ has provided us um, through his death on the cross. And so like the Whitaker's story, I think this letter really serves as a powerful example of forgiveness, namely how we should forgive others based on how we've been forgiven in Christ. And that's the key. You can't forgive others unless you've been forgiven. And one of the things that, that stood out to me the most when I was just paging through this book and getting familiar with the story of this, this, this tragic event that really happened to this, what appears to be an idyllic family, what, what jumped out at me was, was Kent Whitaker's character, that, that this guy was just an amazing man to be able to forgive his son. And I think as we begin exploring the story of Philemon this morning, that what's going to stand out most to us is the character of Philemon. And that really the, the, the foundational principle that we learn from the very beginning of this book is that forgiveness is based on the character of the forgiver. It's got to come from somewhere, right? And ultimately, it's a gift from God. It's a, a gift of God's grace, but it comes through the character of the one who forgives. And at the beginning of this letter, as we'll see, that before ever bringing up the delicate subject of Onesimus, before ever mentions the name, Paul encouraged Philemon with what he had heard about his character, and he expressed confidence that based on his character that he would receive Onesimus back. And in so doing, he would live up to the high standard for which he was widely known. And so one commentator put it well. He said, the virtuous character of Philemon became the foundation upon which Paul bases his appeal for him to forgive Onesimus. And so what I want us to see this morning, and specifically in verses four through seven, Paul mentioned five characteristics of a person who forgives like God forgives. If you lack any of these five characteristics, you are going to have a hard time forgiving other people. Because in order to forgive others, certain things must be true of you. Certain things must be part of your character. There's five things, and I'll just list them at the start here. Number one, you must have genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must have genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, you must truly love people. You must truly love people. Number three, you must be passionate about unity and growth. Number four, you must want to honor Christ above all else. And then finally, you must desire to be a blessing to others. You must desire to be a blessing to others. Now, before we look at these five characteristics of a person who forgives, like God forgives, we need to just look briefly at uh, the introduction of Philemon in verses one through three. Notice how Paul begins. He says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Now, this is a first, and uh, we can't miss this. I think it's critical to understanding uh, Paul's approach that he took with Philemon. This is the only place in, in, in Paul's letters where he describes himself in the opening greeting as a prisoner of Christ. Normally in his letters, he referred to himself as an apostle of Christ or a bondservant of Christ. But here he introduced himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus and he refers to himself as a prisoner throughout the rest of the letter. 
In fact, five other times he, he refers to himself as either a prisoner or as in chains. Verse 9, as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Verse 10, that I've been begotten in my imprisonment. Verse 13, he talks about his imprisonment for the gospel. Verse 22, he says, at the same time, prepare me lodging, for I hope and that through your prayers I will be given to you. I will be delivered. I will be released from my imprisonment. Verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner. And so what Paul was doing here, I believe, was he was setting the tone for this letter. He was preparing Philemon for the request that he was going to make. I mean, he could have, he could have pulled the apostle card on Philemon, right? And, and, and used his authority as an apostle. But instead, he chose to humbly appeal from what seems to be a place of disadvantage. It's almost as if Paul is putting himself in a position where he's saying, you know, who am I to ask this of you? I'm nothing more than a prisoner. And I think he was preparing here to make a request rather than to issue a command. Prisoners don't issue commands. They make requests. Apostles issue commands. And so he was putting himself in a position where he didn't want to command Philemon to do anything. He wanted to Request. He wanted to appeal to him as a prisoner. And in fact, by calling himself a prisoner, he was also identifying with Onesimus, who was in bondage as a slave. And so he was appealing to Philemon's sense of mercy rather than his sense of duty. Paul didn't want Philemon to forgive Onesimus out of obligation, but out of compassion. And so he appeals to him as a prisoner. And notice he says, as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Paul wanted Philemon to know that he, while he was in one of Nero's uh, uh, places of arrest, maybe it was a, a house, a house arrest, but he was Nero's prisoner, nevertheless, right, uh, who was the Caesar of Rome at the time. But Paul knew that ultimately he was the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was there for the cause of Christ. He also introduces Timothy, our brother who was with him at, the, at, at his side. Uh, Timothy was his most faithful disciple. And notice he says to and Timothy, our brother, and then he says to Philemon, our beloved brother. So all three of them had been born of God and therefore they shared the same divine nature and the relationship that Timothy had with Paul and Philemon, which was this, this brother relationship. Notice he says it's our brother. It's not just my brother, Timothy. It's our brother, Timothy. He, he wants Philemon to have that same relationship with Onesimus. He's about to let him know that guess what? We've got another brother. It just so happens that you're good for nothing Thieven, runaway slave, has now come to Christ. And he's our brother along with Timothy and Philemon and Paul were all together. He addresses the letter to Philemon. Philemon, by the way, means affectionate, which he was indeed true to his name, as we're gonna see. And notice he says, our beloved brother and fellow worker. Paul valued and appreciated uh, Philemon for the practical contribution that he made to the cause of the gospel in Colossae and the surrounding area. In fact, he, he calls him brother two more times here in this letter. Verse 7, he says brother. Verse 20, he says, yes, brother. 
And again, this is uh, really a theme of this book is, is the brotherhood of believers. In fact, some Bible scholars have entitled the book of Philemon from bondage to brotherhood because it's just, it's just oozing with this brotherhood motif that we're all brothers in Christ and we need to act like it. That's a big part of the, the mindset behind forgiveness, right? That we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to forgive one another. Notice he also includes Aphia, our sister, who most assume was Philemon's wife. And the reason why she was addressed here was because the wife in those days often had uh, the, the responsibility to, to run the household and to manage the slaves. And so she needed to be brought in on this letter as well, on this appeal. And to Archippus, our fellow soldier, again, he's typically identified as their son, uh, Paul singled him out at the end of Colossians. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 17, say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you've received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. We said that he was likely the, the guy who uh, Epaphras handed the baton to when he was going to Rome to talk to Paul about the false teachers that had been infiltrating the church in Colossae. He left Archippus in charge. And so he was a fellow soldier. He was a comrade in arms. And so, again, most likely the son of, of Philemon and Aphia. But then notice one other group he addresses here, and, and to the church in your house. And again, here's the connection, right? That, that uh, Philemon was hosting the church in Colossae in his home. And this was uh, very typical before there were church buildings uh, for believers to gather, to worship, and to pray, and to, to study the scriptures and fellowship together around meals and the Lord's Supper in individual homes. In fact, in Romans 16, 1 Corinthians 16, we're introduced to a, a, a marvelous couple named Aquila and Priscilla. And wherever they went, they opened their home for the church to meet. And so that was going on here with Philemon, a very generous, hospitable, gracious man. Notice the greeting that Paul gives, verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This was uh, Paul's classic uh, greeting. It's the same exact greeting that he gave to the church to, in the letter to the Colossians. But uh, no matter what letter you look at, all 13 of Paul's letters, somewhere either at the beginning or the end, mention grace and peace. And what Paul did was he, he took the familiar Greek greeting, charis, uh, grace, and combined it with the, the common Hebrew greeting, peace or shalom, and he adapted them, he pulled them together into a meaningful Christian benediction. And so that was his favorite way to address people, grace and peace to you. And what he was doing, I think, was he was appealing to both Jews and Gentiles. That was the church, right? Jews and Gentiles come together, and so he had a little something for both of them, grace and peace. And so what he meant by that, I think, is that we have peace with God because of the grace of God. Grace is the means of salvation, and peace is the result. And I think this is a great reminder at the very beginning of this letter that to, to all of us that, that, that none of us deserve forgiveness. I don't deserve forgiveness. You don't deserve forgiveness. We all stand equally sinful and guilty before God, and yet he has chosen to shower his favor on us by freely forgiving us and providing us with peace and serenity that comes from knowing that our sins are forgiven. Now, as those who have been undeservedly, right, forgiven for our sin, 
and are enjoying that peace and that serenity of knowing that our sins are forgiven, how could we withhold that peace from someone else? We don't deserve it. They don't deserve it. And yet we should give it because it's been freely given to us. Notice the joint source of grace and peace. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think Paul very purposely here puts the Lord Jesus Christ on the same level with God the Father as the one who bestows these gifts upon us. And again, this is, I think, an under, underhanded way or just a, a, a kind of an understated way of making a point for the deity of Christ, that, that Jesus is equal to God. I mean, it would, it would be blasphemy to give such honor to Christ if he were not truly and fully God. To, put him, to place him right alongside God the Father in this sentence. And so we can be encouraged by this introduction. There's much to, to glean from that in itself, but we want to get to verse 4, where we begin to see these five characteristics of a forgiving person. And I want to encourage you this morning to examine your life and see if these characteristics are true of you. And it may be that because the reason why it's hard to forgive that you struggle with forgiving other people is because you're lacking one or more of these characteristics. And so let's look at these together. First of all, you must have genuine faith in the Lord Jesus. You must have genuine faith in the Lord Jesus. Notice how Paul begins here. He says, I thank my God always, verse four, making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And so again, Paul was typically um, letting people know that, uh, that in his prayers, right, he, he, God would bring people to mind that he would pray for. And uh, when, he, when the Lord brought Philemon to mind, he said, I was so thankful um, to God for, for what he was doing in your life. You, you're, you're a noble brother. This was a, a, the kind of guy that you would want as a brother. This is the kind of guy you would want as a friend. And he was so thankful for two qualities in particular in Philemon's character that gave Paul great joy. Notice he says, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and toward, toward all the saints. Now we often have these two words, love and faith, faith and love, combined in, in Paul's letters. We see it in Colossians and Ephesians, in, in First and Second Thessalonians, uh, faith and love, love and faith, faith and love, love and faith. They're always together. They're, they're inseparable. And so Paul here, again, wrapped these two characteristics, faith and love, together, I think to prepare Philemon that he was about to have an opportunity to manifest the reality of his faith in Christ by showing love to Onesimus. Now this may not be obvious just from a quick reading of verse 5, but there's a, a structure here that's called a chiasm in the original language which basically means they, they cross truths and they, they speak a truth here and connect it to a truth down here and the truth here connects to the truth here. It's kind of like an X pattern here. And so really you read this because I hear of your love is really connected with toward all the saints. Because what would faith, it wouldn't make sense that his faith, he has faith toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, right? 
And so what he's really saying is that, that you have love for all the saints, toward all the saints, and faith toward the Lord Jesus. And so let's look at this faith, first of all, this faith that he had towards the Lord Jesus. I think that, that he was referring to, first of all, saving faith, that he had been truly saved. He had been truly forgiven by the Lord, and therefore he could forgive others. I think this is also possibly a reference to his, to his daily faith, the ongoing practicing of the Christian life and, and, and committing your life to Christ and, and, and trusting in Christ for his sustenance and direction. And he was faithful, he was loyal, he was dependable. That's what, what, what Paul was saying here. His unwavering faith in Christ gave Paul confidence in his willingness to forgive. And so really, the first point is this. You, in order to be able to forgive others, you need to be forgiven yourself. Unbelievers can't forgive, at least in a Christ-like way. They don't have the, the spiritual capacity to forgive. If you, if you remember uh, in, in Romans chapter 3, where Paul was describing the sinfulness of man... He talks about how there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. There's none who does good, not even one. He says, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. In other words, before we came to Christ, we didn't understand grace and peace. It wasn't even on our radar. Right? Because we didn't experience it. It was just, well, all that was in our heart was bitterness and revenge and, 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 and wanting to get back at people and death and destruction and, and malice. All the things that the Bible says as a believer we're supposed to put away, right, and put off, that's all that was in our hearts. And so the first thing we got to ask ourselves is if, if, if you are someone that just, just refuses to forgive others, then that may be the clearest indication you've ever had in your life that you're not truly saved. And so the first thing you need to have happen in your heart, if you're gonna be able to forgive others, like, like this guy forgave his son, right? You, that would have been impossible had he not known Jesus Christ. Christ made that possible. This is not natural. This is not normal. This is supernatural. This is miraculous. And it happens when Jesus Christ comes and transforms your heart and grants you that kind, tender-hearted, forgiving spirit, right? Forgiving others as you have been forgiven. And so you need to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith that if forgiveness is like this huge hurdle that you cannot get over, then that should just drive you to Christ and show you your need for him to come in and change your heart. See, Paul's, or excuse me, Philemon's faith demonstrated itself, the genuineness of it, the, the, the reality of it, in his love. His love for all the saints, toward all the saints, prompted, was prompted or produced by his faith in Christ. Love for the saints is, is the fruit of true saving faith. And so there's a close connection between our first point and that you must have genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And secondly, you must truly love people. You must truly love people. Notice he says, because I hear of your love, and as I said earlier, it should be connected with the last phrase, toward all the saints. 
Others talked about this guy's love, right? These encouraging reports. He says, I've heard of this. Most likely those reports came from Epaphras, his pastor, right? Uh, or maybe even his slave, Onesimus, telling Paul of what a gracious man, what a loving man he, he was towards him and towards his other slaves and towards the people in the church. But Paul, the point is, Paul was, was so encouraged to hear how this man, who he had led to Christ, we're going to see that towards the end of the letter, that, that he owed him a debt, his soul, if you will. He said, listen, you owe me way more than, than this debt of paying back this slave because I was the one who brought you to Christ. And so he, he was encouraged to hear how this man that he had led to Christ had grown to become such an impressive Christian. And it was, it was evident to him that he was truly saved because of the love that he had toward all the saints. We know this is uh, just, just a basic of the Christian life, right? We're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves. right? Jesus said in John 13, after washing the disciples' feet, and he said, now I want you to go do this to one another, right? And what did he say? They will know you are Christians by your what? By your love. How, how does the world know that we're saved? How, how does the world know that we're Christians? Because of the way we love one another. We're also commanded to love throughout the scriptures. 1 John 3, 14, another um, classic passage on love for the believer. 1 John 3, 14 says this, we know that we have passed out of death into life. In other words, we know that we are saved. Why? Because we love the brethren. He who does not love the brethren abides in death. And so love for our fellow believers is, is the way that we know that we're Christians and how other people know that we're Christians. Again, it's a, a great test to see if you're in the faith, that if you truly know Christ. I mean, if you had a choice to spend time with maybe some of your unbelieving friends or, or co-workers or classmates or spend time with your Christian friends and, and co-workers or classmates, who would you rather spend time with? If your heart is, is just always gravitating towards your unbelieving friends uh, because you feel most comfortable with them, you feel like you have the most, co most in common with them, but you really don't care about being around other believers, I'm just gonna tell you, you're not saved. You're not saved. Because if you are saved, the Bible says very clearly in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, that you will love the brethren. You will love other Christians. That's just the way it is. When, you, when Christ puts a love in your heart for him, you also get the side benefit of having love for every other Christian, right? Everyone else whose heart he's in. Notice what Paul said to Philemon here. He says, I hear of your love toward some of the saints. Is that what it says? Towards the saints that you have a lot in common with. To the saints that like you. To the saints that are nice to you. No, he says toward all the saints. In other words, Philemon, his reputation preceded him in that his love was impartial. He put no limits on his love. He didn't care if it was a man or a woman, a slave man or a free, whether it was black or white, rich or poor. He loved all people the same. And I trust that that would be a characteristic of our lives as believers and of this church, that it wouldn't matter 
the color of a person's skin or the bottom line in their checkbook or their bank account or, or what they drove to church today or what they're wearing or where the, what their address is in this county. None of that stuff would matter. Doesn't matter. I don't care. I love you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you. All the same. I'm not going to put any limits. Like, I'll forgive you, but I ain't forgiving you. You don't deserve to be forgiven. You, because you're like me and we're, you know, in the same, you know, place in life, you know, I can forgive you, but you, I'm sorry, can't do that. So you, you must truly love people. Paul was quite convinced that a man with such evident love as Philemon would not be the type to harbor a grudge. Guys like this don't harbor grudges. People that truly love other people, they don't harbor grudges. And I'll never forget, uh, uh, several years ago, a, 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 an individual left our church, and, and um, it was a sad thing. I was really bummed because I really enjoyed this person's company and fellowship and felt very like-minded, but something happened that he felt like they needed to leave. And so I'll never forget one of our elders. I heard about this afterwards. Our, one of our elders pursued him and basically just said to him, you know what? The reason why you left our church, so, the reason why it was so easy for you to leave our church is because you don't truly love us. I was like, dude, I'm glad you said that, not me. <laughs> but I, the more I thought about it, I, I said, you know, that guy, he's, he's right. And I think some people will come to a church and they'll just kind of keep everybody at arm's length and they really won't invest their lives. They really won't uh, be begin love relationships with people, right? Because there's, sometimes there's pain and there's hurt involved. So they kind of keep a safe distance. And then when something happens, some, somebody says something, somebody doesn't do something, they all get overlooked. They're gone. They're out the door. Why? Because they don't love anybody. They've never truly loved other people in that particular church. And so I think this is a good reminder for all of us that do we really love each other? Because it's the bond of love, right, that ultimately keeps us together. And, and it should be very, very hard that if we felt like even if the Lord was leading us away for some good reason, some legitimate reason to another church, that it would be so hard because we love each other so much. And it would be like the Apostle Paul when he was going, you know, back to, to, to Rome or, or back to uh, Jerusalem and the church in Ephesus knew this might be the last time they ever saw him. And they just fell on, his, on, on one another and sobbing uncontrollably because they loved each other so dearly. And so listen, if, if, if you are having a hard time forgiving someone, you don't really love them. If you're having a hard time forgiving your spouse for something they said or did or didn't do or didn't say, listen, you don't really love them. If you truly love them, you're going to forgive them. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, right? Forgiveness isn't easy, right? It's hard. But if you truly love them, you'll do that. If you truly love the other members of this church, you're not going to hold a grudge against anybody. You love them. You're going to forgive them. You're going to do to them what you would want them to do for you, right? That's true love. And so you need to truly love people. Number three, you need to be passionate about unity and growth. You need to be passionate about unity and growth. Look at what Paul goes on to say in verse six. He says, and I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective. In other words, his, his faith that he had in the Lord Jesus Christ was not an individualistic faith. There were other people, right, involved 
in, 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 in that faith. It was a fellowship of faith. He's talking about the, the other believers, I think, in the church in Colossae. Some of you may have looked at your Bible and said, oh, well, that's not what my Bible says. That the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. You're like, whoa, where are you getting that, right? The reason why I point that out is because this is really a, a hard verse to interpret, and that's why it's translated in a variety of ways, because it's like nobody can figure out what it really means. <laughs> so we're going to just translate it in different ways. But I think the main idea, just to make it simple, is that, that, that since Philemon truly cared, truly loved, right? We already made that case. He loved the, the other believers, and he truly cared about those that he shared fellowship with in the body of Christ, that he would surely forgive Onesimus. As soon as he found out that he was, a, uh, he was part of the fellowship now, that he would surely forgive him, and that failing to do so would cause a rift in his house, in his church, the church that met in his house, since Onesimus was a believer now. And so by forgiving Onesimus, Philemon would maintain the, the harmony and the peace and the unity that he, that he cherished in that church that met in his home. And it would send a powerful message to the church about the importance of fellowship. That we don't want to do anything that would disrupt the fellowship of our church. And the unity of our church, we don't want to be responsible for causing division or strife. And so forgiving a fellow believer, no matter what the offense, makes a strong statement for your concern for the unity of this body. In other words, if you can go on holding a grudge against somebody else in this church, you don't care about the unity of this church. You don't, you don't care about the fellowship of this church. And, 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 and you don't care about the growth of this church because if we're not unified, we can't grow. We can't mature. We can't become all that God wants us to be. And so this is very, very convicting to think about, right? Do you really, are you really that concerned about the fellowship of this church, the unity of this church, that you would never do anything that would hinder that, including withholding forgiveness from someone who has hurt you or offended you, said something stupid to you, said something insensitive to you, right? It happens. And that's why we need to be passionate about unity. Notice he says that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. We know that in Christ. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing imaginable. And it was always Paul's prayer, no matter who he was writing to, that, that, that the Christians would fully grasp all that is available to us in Christ. He, he prays this in Ephesians. He prayed it in Colossians. That, that they, they would know Christ. That was his passion, that he wanted to know Christ, Philippians chapter 3. And he wasn't just talking about intellectual knowledge, like facts in the head. He, he was talking about an experiential knowledge, and the word that he uses here for knowledge is, is the word in the Greek that means experiential knowledge. Not just knowing something, but experiencing something. I mean, it's one thing to hear a sermon on forgiveness. It's, it's, it's one thing to, to read a book on forgiveness. But until you actually have to forgive someone who's sinned against you, who's hurt you deeply, you really don't understand forgiveness. You don't fully understand forgiveness until you have to actually do it. 
So don't think you understand forgiveness because you have heard a sermon on forgiveness. Don't think you understand forgiveness because you've read a book on forgiveness. Don't think you understand forgiveness because you've preached a sermon on forgiveness, right? Um, don't, don't, don't think you understand forgiveness because you know the, the biblical counseling, you know, three things. You, you can never bring it up to, to that person. You never bring it up to somebody else. You can't bring it up to your own self, right? Um, you know those, what true biblical forgiveness looks like. You don't know forgiveness until you have to do that yourself. And so that's what he's praying for, that he, would, he was about to experience this <laughs> by for, having the opportunity to forgive his runaway slave. And so as Philemon increasingly recognized all the spiritual realities that, that Christ had provided him uh, in his salvation, he would be stimulated to display a, a similar sort of grace to, the, to undeserving Christians and to the first and foremost being Onesimus. And so the same love and grace that he had for his fellow believers who met in his home were to now include this runaway Onesimus. And so listen, if you have a hard time being gracious to other people, you don't fully grasp, you don't fully know how gracious God has been with you. If you can't be gracious with it, you don't get it. You do not get it. You don't understand God's grace if you're not gracious to other people. But the more you come to grips with God's grace in your life, the more you'll want to extend that grace to others. And I would just want to point something out that I just kind of analyzing the movements within the church, the evangelical church in general, not necessarily our church in specific. But I think most of us are familiar with what's maybe called the grace movement. And there's a lot of uh, good things out there that are being written and preached about the need to be, to be fully convinced of God's grace and, 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 and in Christ. And, and, and for those of us who, who tend to focus on being doers of the word and not just hearers only, right? We need to hear that. It's refreshing to be reminded that it's not what you do for Christ, but what Christ has done for you. That's grace. And that grace is scandalous. It's, 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 it's unbelievable that, that, that we can be freely forgiven for our sin without any cost, right? That's grace. God's riches at Christ's expense, getting what we don't deserve. That's scandalous. It, it's, we, need to be, we need to be hearing that and be refreshed by that. And yet it's a concern of mine that it seems that some in that movement who are so apparently overwhelmed with God's grace in their lives are some of the most ungracious people. And, and especially to the people that don't get it. <laughs> the people that, uh, you, you don't get it, do you? Well, you know what? You bug me. I'm not gonna spend time with you anymore. You, you just frustrate me because you don't get it. Well, whoa, whoa, time out. If you are so enthralled with God's grace, then you should be flowing. Grace should be flowing out of you to other people. You should be the most gracious people in the church. You should be the most gracious people on the planet. There's some inconsistency there, and I'm not sure what, where it's rooted in, but just be careful. Be careful. See, the more we grow in Christ, the more we want to show that same love and grace toward others that God has shown us. And so we need to care. We need to be concerned um, about unity and about growth. Be passionate about it. 
And then quickly, number four, you must want to honor Christ above all else. You must want to honor Christ above all else. If you're gonna, if you're gonna be a forgiving person, right, you, you gotta wanna honor Christ above all else. That's what it ultimately comes down to. Notice he just... One little phrase here, I pray, verse six, that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. This isn't about you, Philemon. This isn't about Onesimus. This isn't about the church in Colossae. This isn't even about me, Paul, right? This is about Christ. This is all about him and his honor and his glory and, and that we should do everything we do for the sake of Christ. First Corinthians 10.31 Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, right? The most menial things we do every day without even thinking, even those things we should do to the glory of God. John MacArthur says it well here. He says, someone devoted to Christ's glory would certainly forgive another as an unforgiving spirit does not glorify Christ. Paul was confident that Philemon would forgive Onesimus because he knew of Philemon's great concern to glorify Christ. And so, if you're having a hard time forgiving somebody, that's evidence that it's all about you. You're not thinking about Christ. You're thinking about you and your feelings and how you've been hurt and, how, and your honor Right? And, and you're not thinking about Christ's honor. And ultimately, what does the scripture say in 1 Corinthians 6? It's better to be defrauded, right? Ripped off than to drag the name of Christ through the mud, right? When you really care about Christ and, and his honor, I, I'm telling you what, this, um, I was reading an article this week on, on MSN.com, and it's where I keep up on the headlines, and, and, and you may have seen the same story of a church up in the Pacific Northwest, and it seems like a very like-minded church. It was kind of scary um, to ours, and, and, and yet um, this lady had left the church, and she was very offended by the way the church had shunned her, and I don't know, it could have very well been a church discipline situation. It kind of sounded like it, but she just went off on the church on the internet, blogging and saying all these bad things, slandering and gossiping about the church to the point where the pastor of the church sued her for $500,000. I'm going, what, what's wrong with that picture, right? First Corinthians 6 is so clear, right? Let's assume that she's a believer, right? Maybe under discipline, we're not sure. But to, to have the pastor suing, right? Uh, someone that left the church. To me, that's a clear violation. Obviously, I don't know all the facts, Okay, but it, it appears to be a clear violation of 1 Corinthians 6 and how dishonoring to Christ that whole thing is. In fact, the end of the newscast, the reporter says, well, this is gonna be one to watch. Like, yeah, look at this. Almost like this is a, just a circus, right? Classic church carnival. The, the world kind of watches and goes, oh, it's, it's entertaining for them. And it just brings dishonor to the name of Christ. And so if you truly wanna honor Christ above all else, listen, you're gonna get over it. You're going to let it go, right? You're going to forgive it for the sake of Christ. And then lastly, number five, you must desire to be a blessing to others. You must desire to be a blessing to others. Look at verse seven. For I've come to have much joy and comfort in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. So the word of Philemon's 
love and generosity and, and, and self-sacrifice had traveled all the way from Colossae to Rome and it brought Paul great joy. And no doubt it was extremely rewarding for Paul to hear that his child in the faith was, was such a blessing to so many people. Not only was he a blessing to the people in the church in Colossae, he was a blessing to the apostle Paul in Rome. So he was refreshing souls across Asia. And his magnanimous and gracious personality, he was, he was got used by God to, to meet physical and emotional and spiritual needs of others. And he'd already displayed great love and, 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 and comfort and kindness and generosity and, and grace to, to saints all over the place. And Paul was hoping that now Onesimus would be um, simply included in that, in that mag, magnanimous love and, and forgiveness. I mean, surely Philemon wouldn't withhold forgiveness and stubbornly shun a brother or keep him at arm's length even though he had sinned against him because he was a brother. Notice, again, Philemon must have been so blessed to be reminded of his brotherhood with the likes of the Apostle Paul. He was soon to find out that Paul wanted him to brace his brotherhood with Onesimus. And so, really, it, it, it comes down to you, you, do you want to be a blessing to others or not? You, you know the blessing it is to be forgiven, don't you? I mean, what a blessing to know that your sins are forgiven, that God is forgiven. We, we experience God's blessings. We know what it's like. And even to be forgiven, for somebody to say, you go to somebody and say, you know, I messed up and I shouldn't have said that, I shouldn't have done that, would you please forgive me? And they say, you bet, I'll forgive you. Man, it's just like a load off, a weight off your soul, right? You're so thankful. You're so blessed. And that we could say, no, I'm not, I'm not gonna forgive you. Then you don't wanna be a blessing, right? If you know what it's like to be blessed, right, then you should want to be a blessing to others. You should want to be in that position where you can be a blessing to other people and take that weight, that load. Really, you know what forgiveness is? Literally, in, in the original language, it's, it's unlocking chains. It's setting a person free. That's the blessing that we are when we forgive other people. We, we set them free from that, that thing that binds them. And so here Paul was simply just laying a foundation for what he was about to, to ask Philemon. And he was expressing his confidence that he could appeal to Philemon to forgive Onesimus because he knew of his godliness. He knew of his, of his spirituality. He knew of his mature character, just like Kent Whitaker's. Just like this guy who forgave his son. And so the bottom line, and we said this last time, is that forgiveness is a mark of spiritual maturity. And if you want a simple test to determine where you're at in the, your maturity level in Christ, one of the best barometers is how easy or how hard it is for you to forgive. The harder it is for you to forgive it means that you're less mature in Christ. And the easier it is for you to forgive, the more mature you are in Christ. And so bottom line is, if you have an unforgiving attitude, that's an evidence that you're a baby Christian. If you're a Christian at all. But you're just an immature believer. And that's okay. That's why we're here. We want to help you grow. We want to help you mature. 
right? Where forgiveness will never become easy, right? It's always going to be hard. But hopefully it will get easier over time. We'll learn how to forgive. You know, I began this message with a story of a father and a son and forgiveness. And I want to end this morning with another story of a father and a son and forgiveness. This story happened 2,000 years ago, not in our backyard, but over in Jerusalem. And the son in this story was on a cross, being murdered unjustly by Roman soldiers and Jewish religious leaders. And as Jesus hung on that cross, you'll remember one of the things he said to his father in heaven. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I mean, if you don't get anything else out of this series on Philemon, I trust we would get that, the example of the son and the father, God the father, the son Jesus Christ, the son acknowledging the sin around him, but the sin that was being done in ignorance. And how much of the sin that is committed against us, that we see around us, that we experience, is done in ignorance. The people don't even understand what they're doing. And yet it, it just gets all over us, right? And we, 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 we let it get us bitter and angry and frustrated. And we hold grudges and the roots of bitterness begin growing and, and, and takes over our lives. And if we could just learn to be like Jesus, right? And say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I tell you what, it would make life a whole lot easier if we were able just to entrust ourselves, right, to the one who judges righteously. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this little portion of Philemon that is rich with truth for our lives. I pray that you would work these characteristics into each one of us, Lord, that uh, everyone here would have genuine faith in Christ, that they would truly love each other. Lord, that they would have a passion for unity and, and, and the growth of this body. And Lord, that um, they, they would also know experientially what it means to forgive. Lord, that you would Make us want to be a blessing to one another. And ultimately, Lord, that we would always be thinking about Christ and how what we say and what we do and what we are willing to do and what we're willing to look overlook, Lord, is for the sake of Christ and for the sake of his glory and honor and, and the greatness of his name and his reputation. And so, Lord, I pray that that, that Christ's sake would be what drives us in everything we do this week. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.